12. Our death worder is born in and with them, and by parental agency. 18. Graveyard statistics. Take graveyard statistics in August, and then say, whether most of the deaths of children are not caused by indigestion, or feebleness of the bowels, liver, etc. or complaints growing out of them, rather, take family statistics from broken-hearted parents, and yet, in general, those very parents who thus suffer more than words can tell, word are the first and main transgressors, because they entail those dyspeptic, heart, and other kindred affections so common among American parents upon their own children, and thereby almost as bad as kill them by inches, thus depriving them of the joys of life, and themselves of their greatest earthly treasure. 19. All children may die. Children may indeed die whose parents are healthy, but they almost must whose parents are essentially ailing in one or more of their vital organs, because, since they inherit this organ debilitated or diseased, any additional cause of sickness attacks this part first, and when it gives out, all go by the board together. 20. Parents must learn and obey. How infinitely more virtuous and happy would your children be if you should be healthy in body, and happy in mind, so as to beget in them a constitutionally healthy and vigorous physiology, along with a serene and happy frame of mind. Words are utterly powerless in answer, and so is everything but a lifetime of consequent happiness or misery. Learn and obey, then, the laws of life and health, that you may both reap the rich reward yourself, and also shower down upon your children after you, blessings many and most exalted, avoid excesses of all kinds, be temperate, take good care of the body and avoid exposures and disease, and your children will be models of health and beauty. 21. The right condition. The great practical inference island that those parents who desire intellectual and moral children, must love each other, because, this love, besides perpetually calling forth and cultivating their higher faculties, awakens them to the highest pitch of exalted action in that climax, concentration, and consummation of love which propagates their existing qualities, the mental endowment of offspring being proportionate to the purity and intensity of parental love. 22. The Effects The children of affectionate parents receive existence and constitution when love has rendered the mentality of their parents both more elevated and more active than it is by nature. Of course the children of loving parents are both more intellectual and moral by nature than their parents. Now, if these children and their companions also love one another, this same law which renders the second generation better than the first, will of course render the third still better than the second, and thus of all succeeding generations. 23. Animal impulse. You may preach and pray till doomsday may send out missionaries, may circulate tracts and Bibles, and multiply revivals and all the means of grace, with little avail, because, as long as mankind go on, as now, to propagate by animal impulse, so long must their offspring be animal, sensual, devilish, but only induce parents cordially to love each other, and you thereby render their children constitutionally talented and virtuous. Oh! Parents, by as much as you prefer the luxuries of concord to the torments of discord, and children that are sweet dispositioned and highly intellectual to those that are rough wrathful, and depraved, be entreated to, love one another, too many children, 1. Lessening pauperism, many of the agencies for lessening pauperism are afraid of tracing back its growth to the frequency of births under wretched conditions. One begins to question whether after all sweet charity or dignified philanthropy has not acted with an unwise reticence, 
Among the problems which defy practical handling this is the most complicated. The pauperism which arises from marriage is the result of the worst elements of character legalized. In America, where the boundaries of wedlock are practically boundless, it is not desirable, even were it possible, that the state should regulate marriage much further than it now does, therefore must the sociologist turn for aid to society in his struggle with pauperism. 2. Right physical and spiritual conditions of birth. Society should insist upon the right spiritual and physical conditions for birth. It should be considered more than a penny when another child is born into a home too poor to receive it. The underlying selfishness of such an event should be recognized, for it brings motherhood under wrong conditions of health and money. Instead of each birth being the result of mature consideration and hallowed loves children are too often born as animals are born. To be sure the child has a father whom he can call by name. Better that there had never been a child. 3. Wrong Results No one hesitates to declare that it is want of self-respect and morality which brings wrong results outside of marriage. But it is also the want of them which begets evil inside the marriage relation. Though there is nothing more difficult than to find the equilibrium between self-respect and self-sacrifice. Yet on success in finding it depends individual and national preservation. The fact of being wife and mother or husband and father should imply dignity and joyousness, no matter how humble the home. 4. Difference of opinion amongst physicians. In regard to teaching, the difficulties are great. As soon as one advances beyond the simplest subjects of hygiene, one is met with the difference of opinions among physicians, when each one has a different way of making a mustard plaster. No wonder that each has his own notions about everything else. One doctor recommends frequent births another advises against them. 5. Different natures. If physiological facts are taught to a large class, there are sure to be some in it whose impressionable natures are excited by too much plain speaking, while there are others who need the most open teaching in order to gain any benefit. Talks to a few persons generally are wiser than popular lectures, especially are talks needed by mothers and in Moford girls who come from everywhere to the city. 6. Boys and young men. It is not women alone who require the shelter of organizations and instruction, but boys and young men. There is no double standard of morality, though the methods of advocating it depend upon the sex which is to be instructed. Men are more concerned with the practical basis of morality than with its sentiment, and with the pecuniary aspects of domestic life than with its physical and mental suffering. We all may need medicine for moral ills. Yet the very intangibleness of purity makes us slow to formulate rules for its growth. Under the guidance of the wise in spirit and knowledge, much can be done to create a higher standard of marriage and to proportion the number of births according to the health and income of parents. 7. For the sake of the state. If the home exists primarily for the sake of the individual, it exists secondarily for the sake of the state. Therefore, any home into which are continually born the inefficient children of inefficient parents, not only is a discomfort in itself, but it also furnishes members for the armies of the unemployed, which are tinkering and hindering legislation and demanding by the brute force of numbers that the state shall support them. 8. Opinions from high authorities. In the statements and arguments made in the above we have not relied upon our own opinions and convictions, but have consulted the best authorities, and we hereby quote some of the highest authorities upon this subject. 9. Ref. Leonard Dawson. How rapidly conjugal prudence might lift a nation out of pauperism was seen in France. Let them therefore hold the maxim that the production of offspring with forethought and providence is rational nature. 
It was immoral to bring children into the world whom they could not reasonably hope to feed, clothe and educate. 10. Mrs. Fawcett. Nothing will permanently offset pauperism while the present reckless increase of population continues. 11. Dr. George N. A. P. H. S. Having too many children unquestionably has its disastrous effects on both mother and children as known to every intelligent physician. Two-thirds of all cases of womb disease, says Dr. Tilt, are traceable to childbearing in feeble women. There are also women to whom pregnancy is a nine-months torture, and others to whom it is nearly certain to prove fatal. Such a condition cannot be discovered before marriage. The detestable crime of abortion is appallingly rife in our day. It is abroad in our land to an extent which would have shocked the dissolute women of pagan Rome's this wholesale, fashionable murder. How are we to stop it? Hundreds of vile men and women in our large cities subsist by this slaughter of the innocent. 12. Ref. H.R.H.A.W.E.I.S. Until it is thought a disgrace in every rank of society, from top to bottom of social scale, to bring into the world more children than you are able to provide for. The poor man's home, at least must often be a purgatory his children dinnerless, his wife a beggar himself too often drunk here. Then, are the real remedies, first, control the family growth according to the family means of support. 13. Montague Cookson. The limitation of the number of the family is as much the duty of married persons as the observance of chastity is the duty of those that are unmarried. 14. John Stuart Mill. Everyone has a right to life. We will suppose this granted but no one has a right to bring children into a life to be supported by other people. Whoever means to stand upon the first of these rights must renounce all pretension to the last. Little improvement can be expected in morality until the production of a large family is regarded in the same light as drunkenness or any other physical excess. 15. Dr. T.D. Nichols. In the present social state, men and women should refrain from having children unless they see a reasonable prospect of giving them suitable nurture and education. 16. Ref. M.J. Savage. Some means ought to be provided for checking the birth of sickly children. 17. Dr. Stockham. Thoughtful minds must acknowledge the great wrong done when children are begotten under adverse conditions. Women must learn the laws of life so as to protect themselves, and not be the means of bringing sin cursed, diseased children into the world. The remedy is in the prevention of pregnancy, not in producing abortion. Small families and the improvement of the race. 1. Married people must decide for themselves. It is the fashion of those who marry nowadays to have few children. Often done. Of course this is a matter which married people must decide for themselves. As is stated in an earlier chapter, sometimes this policy is the wisest that can be pursued. 2. Diseased people who are likely to beget only a sickly offspring may follow this course, and so may thieves, rascals, vagabonds, insane and drunken persons, and all those who are likely to bring into the world beings that ought not to be here, but why so many well-to-do folks should pursue a policy adapted only to paupers and criminals, is not easy to explain, why marry at all if not to found a family that shall live to bless and make glad the earth after father and mother are gone, it is not wise to rear too many children nor is it wise to have too few, properly brought up, they will make home a delight, and parents happy. 3. Population Limited. Dalton, in his great work on hereditary genius, observes that, the time may hereafter arrive in far distant years, when the population of this earth shall be kept as strictly within bounds of number and suitability of race, as the sheep of a well-ordered moor, or the plants in an orchard house, 
In the meantime let us do what we can to encourage the multiplication of the races best fitted to invent and conform to a high and generous civilization. For, shall sickly people raise children? The question whether sickly people should marry and propagate their kind, is briefly alluded to in an early chapter of this work. Where father and mother are both consumptive the chances are that the children will inherit physical weakness, which will result in the same disease, unless great pains are taken to give them a good physical education, and even then the probabilities are that they will find life a burden hardly worth living. 5. No real blessing. Where one parent is consumptive and the other vigorous, the chances are just half as great. If there is a scrofulous or consumptive taint in the blood, beware. Sickly children are no comfort to their parents, no real blessing. If such people marry, they had better, in most cases, avoid parentage. 6. Welfare of mankind. The advancement of the welfare of mankind is a most intricate problem. All ought to refrain from marriage who cannot avoid abject poverty for their children, for poverty is not only a great evil, but tends to its own increase by leading to recklessness in marriage. On the other hand, as Mr. Dalton has remarked, If the prudent avoid marriage, while the reckless marry, the inferior members will tend to supplant the better members of society. 7. Preventives. Remember that the thousands of preventives which are advertised in papers, private circulars, etc. are not only inefficient, and reliable and worthless, but positively dangerous, and the annual mortality of females in this country from this cause alone is truly horrifying. Study nature and nature's laws alone will guide you safely in the path of health and happiness. 8. Nature's Remedy. Nature in her wise economy has prepared for overproduction, for during the period of pregnancy and nursing, and also most of the last half of each menstrual month, woman is naturally sterile, but this condition may become irregular and uncertain on account of stimulating drinks or immoral excesses. The Generative Organs. 1. The reproductive organs in man are the penis and testicles and their appendages. 2. The penis deposits the seminal life germ of the male. It is designed to fulfill the seed planting mission of human life. 3. In the accompanying illustration all the parts are named. 4. Urethra. The urethra performs the important mission of emptying the bladder, and is rendered very much larger by the passion, and the semen is propelled along through it by little layers of muscles on each side meeting above and below. It is this canal that is inflamed by the disease known as gonorrhea. 5. Prostate gland. The prostate gland is located just before the bladder. It swells in men who have previously overtaxed it, thus preventing all sexual intercourse, and becomes very troublesome to void urine. This is a very common trouble in old age. 6. The penal gland. The penal gland, located at the end of the penis becomes unduly enlarged by excessive action and has the consistency of india rubber. It is always enlarged by erection. It is this gland at the end that draws the semen forward. It is one of the most essential and wonderful constructed glands of the human body. 7. Female Magnetism. When the male organ comes in contact with female magnetism, the natural and proper excitement takes place. When excited without this female magnetism it becomes one of the most serious injuries to the human body. The male organ was made for a high and holy purpose, and woe be to him who pollutes his manhood by practicing the secret vice. He pays the penalty in after years either by the entire loss of sexual power, or by the afflictions of various urinary diseases. 8. Nature pays all her debts, and when there is an abuse of organ, penalties must follow. If the hand is thrust into the fire it will be burned. 
The female sexual organs. 1. The generative or reproductive organs of the human female are usually divided into the internal and external. Those regarded as internal are concealed from view and protected within the body. Those that can be readily perceived are termed external. The entrance of the vagina may be stated as the line of demarcation of the two divisions. 2. Hymen or vaginal valve. This is a thin membrane of half-moon shape stretched across the opening of the vagina. It usually contains before marriage one or more small openings for the passage of the menses. This membrane has been known to cause much distress in many females at the first menstrual flow. The trouble resulting from the openings in the hymen not being large enough to let the flow through and consequently blocking up the vaginal canal, and filling the entire internal sexual organs with blood, causing paroxysms and hysterics and other alarming symptoms. In such cases the hymen must be ruptured that a proper discharge may take place at once. 3. Unyielding hymen. The hymen is usually ruptured by the first sexual intercourse, but sometimes it is so unyielding as to require the aid of a knife before coition can take place. 4. The presence of the hymen was formerly considered a test of virginity, but this theory is no longer held by competent authorities, as disease or accidents or other circumstances may cause its rupture. 5. The ovaries. The ovaries are little glands for the purpose of forming the female egg. They are not fully developed until the period of puberty, and usually are about the size of a large chestnut. They are located in the broad ligaments between the uterus and the fallopian tubes. During pregnancy the ovaries change position, they are brought farther into the abdominal cavity as the uterus expands. 6. Office of the ovary. The ovary is to the female what the testicle is to the male. It is the germ vitalizing organ and the most essential part of the generative apparatus. The ovary is not only an organ for the formation of the ova, but is also designed for their separation when they reach maturity. 7. Ephalopiolan tubes. These are the ducts that lead from the ovaries to the uterus. They are entirely detached from the glands or ovaries, and are developed on both sides of the body. 8. Office of the fallopian tubes. The fallopian tubes have a double office, receiving the ova from the ovaries and conducting it into the uterus as well as receiving the spermatic fluid of the male and conveying it from the uterus in the direction of the ovaries, the tubes being the seat of impregnation. 9. Sterility in females. Sterility in the female is sometimes caused by a morbid adhesion of the tube to a portion of the ovary. By what power the mouth of the tube is directed toward a particular portion of an ovary, from which the ovum is about to be discharged, remains entirely unknown as does also the precise nature of the cause which affects this movement, the mysteries of the formation of life. 1. Scientific theories. Darwin, Huxley, Heckel, Tyndall, Meyer, and other renowned scientists, have tried to find the missing link between man and animal, they have also exhausted their genius in trying to fathom the mysteries of the beginning of life, or find where the animal and mineral kingdoms unite to form life, but they have added to the vast accumulation of theories only and the world is but little wiser on this mysterious subject. 2. Physiology. Physiology has demonstrated what physiological changes take place in the germination and formation of life, and how nature expresses the intentions of reproduction by giving animals distinctive organs with certain secretions for this purpose, etc. All the different stages of development can be easily determined, but how and why life takes place under such special condition and under no other is an unsolved mystery. 3. Ovaries. The ovaries are the essential parts of the generative system of the human female in which ova are matured. 
There are two ovaries, one on each side of the uterus, and connected with it by the fallopian tubes. They are egg-shaped, about an inch in diameter, and furnish the germs or ovules. These germs or ovules are very small, measuring about one one hundred twenty of an inch in diameter. 4. Development. The ovaries develop with the growth of the female so that finally at the period of puberty they ripen and liberate an ovum or germ vesicle, which is carried into the uterine cavity of the fallopian tubes. By the aid of the microscope we find that these ova are composed of granular substance, in which is found a miniature yolk surrounded by a transparent membrane called the zona pellucida. This yolk contains a germinal vesicle in which can be discovered a nucleus, called the germinal spot. The process of the growth of the ovaries is very gradual and their function of ripening and discharging one ovum monthly into the fallopian tubes and uterus, is not completed until between the 12th and 15th years. 5. What science knows. After the sexual embrace we know that the sperm is lifted within the genital passages or portion of the vagina and mouth of the uterus. The time between the deposit of the semen and fecundation varies according to circumstances. If the sperm cell travels to the ovarium it generally takes from 3 to 5 days to make the journey. As Drive Pierce says, the transportation is aided by the ciliary processes little hairs of the mucous surface of the vaginal and uterine walls, as well as by its own vibrational movements. The action of the cilia, under the stimulus of the sperm, seems to be from without, inward, even if a minute particle of sperm, less than a drop, be left upon the margin of the external genitals of the female, it is sufficient in amount to impregnate, and can be carried, by help of these cilia to the ovaries. 6. Conception. After intercourse at the proper time the liability to conception is very great. If the organs are in a healthy condition, conception must necessarily follow, and no amount of prudence and the most rigid precautions often fail to prevent pregnancy. 7. Only one absolutely safe method. There is only one absolutely safe method to prevent conception, entirely free from danger and injury to health, and one that is in the reach of all that is to refrain from union altogether. Conception its limitations. 1. A common question. The question is often asked. Can conception be prevented at all times? Let us say right here that even if such an interference with nature's laws were possible it is inadmissible, and never to be justified except in cases of deformity or disease. 2. False claims of impostors. During the past few years a great deal has been written on the subject claiming that new remedies had been discovered for the prevention of conception, etc. But these are all money-making devices to deceive the public, and enrich the pockets of miserable and unprincipled impostors. 3. The truth of the matter. Dr. Pankost, an eminent authority, says, The true island there is no medicine taken internally capable of preventing conception, and the person who asserts to the contrary, not only speaks falsely, but is both a knave and a fool. 4. Foolish dread of children. What is more deplorable and pitiable than an old couple childless? Young people dislike the care and confinement of children and prefer society and social entertainments and thereby do great injustice and injury to their health. Having children under proper circumstances never ruins the health and happiness of any woman. In fact, womanhood is incomplete without them. She may have a dozen or more, and still have better health than before marriage. It is having them too close together and when she is not in a fit state, that her health gives way. 5. Self-denial and forbearance. If the husband respects his wife he will come to her relief by exercising self-denial and forbearance, 
but sometimes before the mother has recovered from the effects of bearing, nursing and rearing one child, ere she has regained proper tone and vigor of body and mind, she is unexpectedly overtaken, surprised by the manifestation of symptoms which again indicate pregnancy. Children thus begotten cannot become hardy and long-lived, but the love that parents may feel for their posterity, by the wishes for their success, by the hopes for their usefulness, by every consideration for their future well-being, let them exercise caution and forbearance until the wife becomes sufficiently healthy and enduring to bequeath her own rugged, vital stamina to the child she bears in love. 6. A wrong to the mother and child. Sometimes the mother is diseased, the outlet from the womb, as a result of laceration by a previous childbirth, is frequently enlarged, thus allowing conception to take place very readily, and hence she has children in rapid succession. Besides the wrong to the mother in having children in such rapid succession, it is a great injustice to the babe in the womb and the one at the breast that they should follow each other so quickly that one is conceived while the other is nursing. One takes the vitality of the other, neither has sufficient nourishment, and both are started in life stunted and incomplete. 7. Feeble and diseased parents. If the parties of a marriage are both feeble and so adapted to each other that their children are deformed, insane or idiots, then to beget offspring would be a flagrant wrong, if the mother's health is in such a condition as to forbid the right of laying the burden of motherhood upon her, then medical aid may safely come to her relief. 8. The desirability and practicability of limiting offspring, says Dr. Stockham, are the subject of frequent inquiry. Fewer and better children are desired by right-minded parents. Many men and women, wise in other things of the world, permit generation as a chance result of copulation, without thought of physical or mental conditions to be transmitted to the child. Coition, the one important act of all others, carrying with it the most vital results is usually committed for selfish gratification. Many a drunkard owes his lifelong appetite for alcohol to the fact that the inception of his life could be traced to a night of dissipation on the part of his father. Physical degeneracy and mental derangements are too often caused by the parents producing offspring while laboring under great mental strain or bodily fatigue. Drunkenness and licentiousness are frequently the heritage of posterity. Future generations demand that such results be averted by better prenatal influences. The world is groaning under the curse of chance parenthood. It is due to posterity that procreation be brought under the control of reason and conscience. 9. It has been feared that a knowledge of means to control offspring would, if generally diffused, be abused by women, that they would to so great an extent escape motherhood as to bring about social disaster. This fear is not well founded. The maternal instinct is inherent and sovereign in woman. Even the prenatal influences of the murderous intent on the part of parents scarcely ever eradicate it. With this natural desire for children, we believe few women would abuse the knowledge of privilege of controlling offspring. Although women shrink from forced maternity, and from the bearing of children under the great burden of suffering, as well as other adverse conditions, it is rare to find a woman who is not greatly disappointed if she does not sometime in her life, wear the crown of motherhood, an eminent lady teacher, in talking to her pupils once said, the greatest calamity that can befall a woman is never to have a child, the next greatest calamity is to have one only, from my professional experience I am happy to testify that more women seek to overcome causes of sterility than to obtain knowledge of limiting the size of the family or means to destroy the embryo, also, if consultation for the latter is sought, it is usually at the instigation of the husband, 
believing in the rights of unborn children, and in the maternal instinct, I am consequently convinced that no knowledge should be withheld that will secure proper conditions for the best parenthood. 10. The case of the Duke family. We submit the following case of the Duke family, mostly of New York State, as related by Driver L. Dudgale, when a member of the prison association, and let the reader judge for himself, it was traced out by painstaking research that from one woman called Margaret, who, like Topsy, nearly growed without pedigree as a pauper in a village of the Upper Hudson, about 85 years ago, there descended 673 children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren, of whom 200 were criminals of the dangerous class, 280 adult paupers, and 50 prostitutes, while 300 children of her lineage died prematurely. The last fact proves to what extent in this family nature was kind to the rest of humanity in saving it from a still larger aggregation or undesirable and costly members, for it is estimated that the expense to the state of the descendants of Maggie was over a million dollars, and the state itself did something also towards preventing a greater expense by the restraint exercised upon the criminals, paupers, and idiots of the family during a considerable portion of their lives. 11. Moderation. Continence self-control, a willingness to deny himself that is what is required from the husband, but a thousand voices reach us from suffering women in all parts of the land that this will not suffice, that men refuse thus to restrain themselves, that it leads to a loss of domestic happiness and to illegal amour, or it is injurious physically and morally, that, in short, such advice is useless because impracticable. 12. Nature's Method to such we reply that nature herself has provided to some extent, against overproduction. It is well known that women, when nursing, rarely become pregnant, and for this reason, if for no other, women should nurse their own children, and continue the period until the child is at least nine months or a year old. However, the nursing, if continued too long, weakens both the mother and the child. 13. Another provision of nature for a certain period between her monthly illness, every woman is sterile, conception may be avoided by refraining from coition except for this particular number of days, and there will be no evasion of natural intercourse, no resort to disgusting practices, and nothing degrading, prenatal influences, 1, definition, by prenatal influences we mean those temporary operations of the mind or physical conditions of the parents previous to birth, which stamp their impress upon the new life. 2. 3. Periods. We may consider this subject as one which naturally divides itself into three periods, the preparation which precedes conception, the mental, moral and physical conditions at the time of conjunction, and the environment in, 